Good morning. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Venice. Happy birthday to you. Da 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 da. Okay. Before I have you stand to read a little passage. Again, remind you of our prayer bowls. We pray over these prayers, so any prayer you have, you can put a prayer bowl here. It's a trumpet bowl, which is answers that God's given to you in prayer. We'd love to hear that those are the green ones. Back by the connection desk, there's also a prayer bowl, so write your prayers out. They'll be prayed for at least, at least, once a month, individually, uh, probably more than that, because we're, we send them out to a lot of people, and then we pray over them on Saturday mornings, which I also would just remind you, we have prayer meetings going on here that are... I believe that it's, the, it's the, the power center of the church. My house should be called the house of prayer. Saturday morning, we had a great prayer meeting yesterday, 8 to 9. We've been doing that since we started. The senior prayer is on Thursday. That's at 10, right? I think on our website it says 9.30. It's 10 o'clock, 10 to noon, correct? Yeah, and then uh, the Spanish also has a prayer meeting uh, on Mondays at 7. I believe it's 7 or 6.30. So, anyway. Would you stand? Let's, let's uh, open our Bibles to Mark 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, pray, and we'll ask the Lord to bless this time in his word. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Then Jesus went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach, the syn- to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty works there except that he, had, that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So, Lord, we are asking your blessing to our minds and our hearts, your Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us, instruct us, grant us, Lord, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. We're thankful that the, word of God, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God and changes our lives miraculously, supernaturally, and Lord, we need you. We need your work in our lives to continue to conform us in the image of Jesus Christ. So that, for that we pray. We also ask, Lord, anyone that's listening who does not know you, please, Lord, by your spirit, draw them. We know you will. And then give them the ears to hear, a willingness to surrender their lives to the one who loved them, loves them and died for them and wants to give them forgiveness, freedom, hope. Please, Lord, we're praying for that. We also would just, within that prayer, include all our loved ones. May 
that are not hearing this and not here, we pray in Jesus' name for their salvation. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The gospel and unbelief. <clears throat> I've got asthma, so I'm, I'm going to be sipping on my water, I think. A.W. Tozer said, God's word is true whether we believe it or not. Human unbelief cannot alter the character of God, unquote. Elizabeth Elliot said, quote, there are those who insist that it is very bad, a very bad thing to question God. To them, why is a rude question. That depends, I believe, on whether it is an honest search in faith for his meaning or whether it is the challenge of unbelief and rebellion. And then finally, St. Augustine said, it is no advantage to be near the light if the eyes are closed. So unbelief, the gospel and unbelief. He went out, verse 1, from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. This is actually the second visit Jesus made to his hometown. Nazareth is not specifically named. The first visit was about a year earlier. There is no, no mention of the disciples. There were no miraculous works. Jesus was not well received. It almost got him killed. He immediately departed, which we'll read in a moment. And now we are a year later. He returns with his disciples with him. So this second visit is not a family visit. It is not to apologize for his last visit. He is the rabbi with his disciples in training. He comes, he stays for a little while, and then leaves, and he never returns. So it says, when the Sabbath had come, verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue. In the first visit, the interaction we'll find here and what's being said are quite similar. So let's flash back a year, if you would, the screen, Luke chapter 4. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stops really at a comma doesn't talk about the vengeance of God, his first coming. And he closed the book, verse 20, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah. He's claiming to be Messiah. They aren't buying it. Yes, he's saying some incredible things, but they're not buying it. First visit. They challenge his authority to make such a claim. Jesus senses this, and then he challenges them in no uncertain terms. We continue. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. You see the similarities of what he's, what's being talked about. But I, tr tell, I tell you truly, many widows 
were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile. And many lepers were in Israel in, that, in, the, in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. So Jesus gives two examples in which God's prophets ministered miraculous acts. They were acts of grace and power to Gentiles because the Isra Israel was in unbelief. So we have this contention now in the area of unbelief. So although, now notice what happens, verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Oh, gracious word, but they are mad because of what he just told them. And rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the, the, bow, the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. They're going to kill him. The pass, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. I don't know what that looked like, but it must have been pretty fascinating. They're going to throw him over. They're mad. They're ticked. The whole city. And he just kind of walks out. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogues. So this is a year later. He was a popular teacher. So, so he's given place now to teach again a year later in the synagogue. But all it does is surface the same contempt in spite of the, the continual reports of what had been going on for a year. His teaching, his authority, his power, his miracles. And many, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, and many hearing him were astonished. Notice, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is, it, is this which is given to him? And such mighty works are performed by his hand. In other words, they're affirming that these things are true. They know about it. They've seen it. They're affirming it. So let's cut to the quick here a minute. There are only two possible sources from which this power is coming. It's either from God or it's from Satan. And these religious leaders, in trying to discredit Christ, Jesus, were always saying, no, he's of Beelzebub. He's from Satan. That's what's going on in the background. They were offended at him. It means scandalized. They fell and tripped over him. It's another attack. They're saying, basically, Jesus is no different than any of us. He was raised there. We saw him. We know his brothers, his sisters, his mom, his dad. They grew up with him and his family, and the population in Nazareth was probably about 12,000 people, small town. Now, it says here, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. This clearly mitigates against the perpetual virginity of Mary. She had other children. Sorry, Catholic Church. The brother of James, probably the oldest after Jesus was born, became a pillar in the church. Judas the, is the author of the book of Jude. We don't know anything about Joseph and Simon, but we do know what happened to his family. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, these all continued with, this is waiting for the Holy Spirit, waiting for that, what Jesus told them to. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Jesus risen, is ascended. They saw that. They're waiting at upper room with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So there was something that happened, this, at least in part, with his family. 
Verse 4, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Familiarity breeds contempt. We've heard that many times. J. Vernon McGee said this, an expert is an ordinary fellow, but he's from another town. (laughs) You see, unbelief nurtures suspicion. Unbelief nurtures cynicism. And if not dealt with, it leads to making conclusions that are not true. That I've not been willing to take in all the evidence. In John 1, 1, it says, He came to his own, his own did not receive him. The son of Mary is probably a derogatory term for being an illegitimate child. Not his father, not Joe, but... Mary. Now, it's possible Joseph was dead at this point. So Jesus sought to make the religious hypocrites take a hard look at what was the root of their unbelief. He was not going to let this go, and he doesn't let it go. So he's, these hypocrites need to take a hard look at what Jesus said about the root of their unbelief. And so we find it's in the same context of this derogatory term that he's illegitimate. So in John chapter 8, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Jesus said, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. There we go. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. Now notice. Then he answered and said, then they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, not, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. I mean, this is pretty direct. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. There it is, the dig. We have one father, God. Now notice. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Pretty profound statements. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father. I mean, these are pretty drastic statements that he's saying. You need to think about your unbelief. What's the problem here? You won't receive the truth. You won't look at the evidence. You don't want to live by that. He goes on to say, but because I tell you the truth, here it is, you do not believe. You do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Wow. We can't ask that question. Jesus could. And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He was of God, hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Wow. Unbelief. They would not believe in spite of the truth. Verse 5, Mark chapter 6. Now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So there were a few people that were sincere seeking that and Jesus did minister to them. 
That word mighty means dunamis. It's supernatural. It's like dynamite. Supernatural power displayed in miracles. He did what he could, but not what he would have. From Expositor's Bible Commentary, quote, verse 5 opens up with one of the boldest statements in the gospel, since it mentions something that Jesus could not do. It was not, of course, that he did not have the power to do more miracles than he did at Nazareth. The inability was related to the moral situation. In the climate of unbelief, he chose not to exercise his miraculous power. In Psalm chapter 78, interesting couple verses, how often they provoked him in the wilderness, his own people, and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. We know the problem was unbelief. The only limitation to omnipotence is unbelief, J. Vernon McGee. Friend, unbelief shuts off omnipotence. Unbelief insulates and isolates the power of God. It still does today, always has, always will. But listen, faith always finds that Jesus is so much more. He's beyond what we even are believing now. Jesus is so much more, and faith finds that. I want to pause a moment, and let's take a hard look at unbelief. Have a hard talk, if you will, about unbelief. Simply put, unbelief is, oppos- is the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the enemy of faith. The Bible is as clear about the consequences of unbelief as it is about the rewards of faith. And we know that faith is that which pleases God. Without faith, Hebrews chapter 11, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is. Now the question is, who is he? The Bible tells us Jesus declared it. Must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God's not trying to hide out. He's not trying to sort of ruin our party. He wants to reward our lives in relationship with him through faith. Faith rests in the present, content in God's love to keep us, to guide us, and to transform our lives. Faith not only rests in the present, it relinquishes the past. This is glorious. Confident that God's works, God works all things together for good. Would you say amen? We relinquish the past. We are all, the old things are passed away. And God takes all of that and puts it together and causes it to work for good. He doesn't say all things are good, but he causes them to work together for good. To those who love him, not just anybody, those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Faith not only rests in the present, relinquishes the past, but faith rejoices in the future, confident that God will do all he has promised to do. No question. No question. Now, on the other hand, unbelief is not pleasing to God and therefore carries with it the weight of sin. The greatest sin of unbelief is not believing in Jesus. He said that. And when he had come, the Holy Spirit had come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, what? Because they do not believe in me. That is the only sin 
that, re, that removes any possibility of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible warns believers to beware of unbelief. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We who accepted Christ can also be those who walk in unbelief towards Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, do not quench the spirit. You see, the spirit of God in our lives, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not partnering up with these other things of sin. We're, we're in relationship with God, a very intimate relationship. And so in Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. In Ephesians, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamoring, evil speaking be put away from you with all mouth. It just goes into a list of things that are contrary to a belief in God and a relationship with God. So unbelief is not pleasing to God. John Stott said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him, unquote. We're having a hard talk here. Are you up for it? Unbelief is an enemy of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Now, there are two Greek words translated unbelief that come from the same root word. Very interesting. Very telling. Translated unbelief can either mean distrust or disobedience. Let me say it again. Distrust or disobedience. When we talk about unbelief, these two go hand in hand. There's an inward attitude that results in an outward action. There's that distrust that leads to disobedience. Now, we are given the children of Israel as our example, the book of Hebrews. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Distrust. Hebrews 4, 6, since therefore remains that some must enter, and those to whom was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, unbelief. Distrust leads to disobedience. Obedience is an act of faith. Disobedience is a result of unbelief. So do I trust God to obey God? To take the things that he's given to me and do them. James said, do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. So this, this thing called unbelief, the Lord has an answer for us. And I hope to give you a couple things at the end to encourage each and every one of us. Because there are those honest doubts there are all those things about which we're wrestling. And I get that, you get that, we know that. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So he, he marveled at that. He's wondering, wow. And, and, and in this whole thing, unbelief is so unreasonable, even the Son of God was surprised by it, if you will. He marveled at it. 
The only other time he marveled was at the faith of the centurion. He marveled at his faith, who believed Jesus didn't even have to go to take care of his servant. He could just say the word, and he'd be healed. And Jesus marveled at that. So only two times, one about unbelief and one about a, a faith in his authority. He marveled because of their unbelief. They had heard and seen and known a whole boatload of indisputable evidence. And yet they would not believe. He marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled not at the fact, but at the nature of it. So unreasonable, it makes no sense. And you know, when we stop to think, it's exactly that. And we sang that song, Great is thy faithfulness. He is faithful. He's been faithful every moment of every millisecond of our lives. He is faithful. And so, because what happened of this thing called sin, it taints and sometimes tortures us in really trusting God to obey God. How and why does this happen? I love this quote. It just says it so well. Quote, in all unbelief, there are two things. A good opinion of oneself (laughs) and a bad opinion of God, unquote. It's as though I know better. I got it figured out. I I don't, in a sense, need God. So they nurtured their suspicions, their cynicisms, and determined the conclusion. Because of their unbelief, they rejected the truth about Jesus. They were unwilling to acknowledge the superiority of Jesus. I love to acknowledge the superiority of Jesus. That's faith. Because of their unbelief, they envied and hated him. They were unwilling to acknowledge the meekness of Jesus. We looked at that last week, the humility, the meekness of Jesus. Because of their unbelief, they prided themselves in having no need for him. It seems to me that these next seven verses are an application of what just happened in Nazareth. Disciples are in training, and you got to know they're soaking this thing in. They're watching what's happening. They're seeing the interaction. They're hearing his words, hard words. Then he went out, verse 1, came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. May I say to you, quite simply, the antidote to unbelief is to follow Jesus. It's not complicated. It's to keep him in focus, the author and finisher of our faith. God's supreme claim is to be trusted to command only what is right, faith. Let me say that again. God's supreme claim is to be trusted to command only what is right, And then also, to promise only what is true. Powerful. 
faith always finds that Jesus is so much more. Follow him. Trust him. Obey him. He is so much more. The longer that we walk with him, the more and more we understand how incredible it is that the Son of God would die on a cross that I might have a relationship with him and trust him and obey him. It's called discipleship. It's called faith. Follow Jesus. It says he called the 12 to himself. Let me give you four applications. Number one, follow closely. Stay close to Jesus. You will always find in doing so, he is so much more. In a book called Finishing Strong, which I have given to countless, particularly men, if you haven't read this book, I suggest you put it on the top of your stack. Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar. He says, in the Christian life, it is not how you start that matters. It's how you finish, finishing strong. He says, stay true to Jesus. Make sure that you keep your heart close to Jesus every day. It's a long way between here and where you're going to go, and Satan is in no hurry to get you. Then he says, if you heard, probably heard this, some of you, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep, keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. I'd like to edit that quote from our, for our study this morning. Unbelief will take you farther than you want to go. Unbelief will keep you longer than you want to stay. Unbelief will cost you more than you want to pay. Stay close to Jesus. He longs for, you, for that relationship with you. And in so doing, you will find, as I find and each of us find, he's more than we could have ever even suggested. Mark verse 7, and began to send them out two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to be put on two, not to put on two tunics. Secondly, travel lightly. Travel lightly. Obey and trust that Jesus is able to take care of you. I mean, we're talking here bare bones. Jesus is telling them they're to take only what's on their backs. No bread, no traveler's bag, and no bucks. No money. And go. Now, the urgency of the mission, and in this training, this little session of training, that they might learn total dependence on God. That is a seriously needed lesson. That God will take care of you. He will meet your needs. This is a short-term mission trip. There's going to be longer ones where he says, take these things, not this time. Verse 10, and he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house... Stay there till you depart from that place. 
Verse 11, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Third, don't take it personally. Wow. <laughs> that, that is a major battle for every one of us at times in our lives. And rightfully so. It hurts. It's interesting, he just focuses on those who do not. They would be experiencing both hospitality and hostility. They would not know, is it going to be friend or foe? But Jesus said, you don't go shopping around for better offers. You go to the house and you stay there. God will provide a home base for you from which he wants them to be an example. Now, it may prove to be hospital or hostile. It may prove to be a friend or a foe. Obviously, we would choose the friend and we would choose the hospitality. Can you say amen? But they were to expect rejection. Now, why? Because they're obeying God. They were to expect rejection. And we need to also expect that that is going to happen. But by faith, I'm going to obey and trust Jesus to take care of it. He'll take care of me, but to take care of it. Now, it's exactly what they just witnessed with Jesus. It was in his own country. It was his own relatives, in his own house that rejected. It gets much more serious than that when even his disciples walk away. He alone bore our sin. Thomas Kempis wrote, quote, It is good that we at times endure opposition. And they were... They, and that we are evilly and untruly judged when our actions and intentions are good. Often such experiences promote humility and protect us from vainglory. I say to the Lord, is there another way? <laughs> For then we seek God's work in the heart. In the heart. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons... And anointed, with, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So preach, listen, preach accountability. Preach accountability to myself and also to others. Every person will give account to God. Preach, obey and trust that Jesus came to save Sinners. Disciples preach the message that people should repent. The message was followed by signs and wonders. That, re that people should repent is not <laughs> a message that people want to hear. In fact, such a message is now violently attacked. 
by our everyone doing what is right in their own eyes culture. And tragically, such a message is now intentionally absent in the turn from the truth unto fables church. Brothers and sisters, repentance is the wholeness offered to us at the throne of grace by Jesus himself and what he accomplished on the cross. It's the door to faith. The power and hope of the gospel stands steady no matter what the opposition against it. Not the devil and all the forces of darkness aligned against it can defeat it. Jesus is so much more. We must believe this. We must preach repentance. We must preach accountability. Because people's very souls are destined by the choice they make concerning the gospel. I know you know that. I know that. The power and hope of the gospel speaks clearly. No matter what the volume against it, not the devil and all the force of darkness blasting their confusions and lies and insanities against it can silence it. The gospel. Jesus at the name of Jesus is so much more. The power and hope of the gospel saves sinners no matter the darkness and depravity of their souls. Not the devil and all the forces of darkness can keep the vilest sinner condemned and captive when the sun sets free. That's the gospel. We talk about the gospel and unbelief. The gospel is the answer for unbelief. The gospel is the answer for life and hope. It's the answer for reality and humility. Because it's Jesus. He's so much more. That people should repent is the message of the gospel that people must hear. And I say to you, when we're preaching the gospel, our faith is fortified and our unbelief taken care of. Simple. I'm not offering any, any of my own sort of musings. I'm saying, here's the gospel. And I know it's the power of God and salvation. Do you believe this? Do we believe these things about the gospel? It's the answer to all unbelief, starting with a relationship with Jesus. So John Calvin wrote, quote, since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is open to all. There is nothing else to hinder from entering but unbelief, unquote. The gospel. And finally, Alexander McLaren said, quote, grieve not the Christ of God who redeems us. And remember that we grieve him most when we will not let him pour his love upon us but we turn a sullen, unresponsive unbelief towards his pleading grace, unquote. It's the gospel. Can I have the worship team come out?
Here's the passage. We leave. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now get this. As though God were pleading through us that God is pleading through us to a lost, dark world saturated in unbelief. We implore you on Christ's behalf, not mine, Christ, be reconciled to God. Preach repentance, obey and trust Jesus came to save sinners. He says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's the cross. That's where this whole unbelief was tackled and taken out. We enter into that through faith in Christ. And now what we have experienced, what we know, that Jesus is so much more. Savior of the world. For that we might become the righteous of God in him. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship and then I'll come up. We'll close in prayer.